Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Hope you had a good uh, Thanksgiving weekend. On Friday night, we were eating dinner with family and we just decided to go eat at a Mexican restaurant and we went in and sat down, you know, they bring you the menu and I flipped through the menu and when I ordered, I ordered number 49 on the menu. 49, that's a lot of choices. And it was not the last number on the menu. There was at least over 60 choices. I don't know if that's ever happened to you that you sit down and you just kind of overwhelmed by the number of choices. It was not an anxious thing for me because regardless of what uh, Mexican restaurant I go to, I always order the exact same thing. It's just a matter of finding where it is on the menu. Now on the flip side of that, several years ago, we went to Texas. We were in the Fort Worth, Arlington area. We had a group of teenagers with us. And we found this place to eat called Babe's Chicken House, which is probably one of my favorite places because I love chicken. And on the menu, there were five choices. That's all you could pick from was five choices. Four of them were chicken. The other one was fried catfish. So it was pretty simple. You just pick which meat you want, and then they bring you all the sides, and everything else was taken care of. And so if you're one of those people that gets really overwhelmed when you're presented with a lot of choices, then you may want to drive to Texas and go to Babe's Chicken House. I, it just reminds me of the overwhelming feeling of anxiety that we can experience when it comes to decision making. And that's because making decisions is so complicated, isn't it? There are so many things that we need to keep in mind when we're making decisions. One of those is we're just kind of afraid of making a costly mistake. And so that's one of the things that I struggle with. I've never struggled with making decisions. I can make a decision, it's that I worry. Is the decision that I just made the right one or could it be the wrong one? Or are you kind of paralyzed by the paradox of choices? There's just so many options to pick from in life. We've been going through this series on Wednesday nights about making decisions. And it's, it's been a reminder to me that all the decisions that we make is what makes the story of our lives. We write the story of our lives one decision at a time. And so it complicates the decision process when we think about how our lives are really fueled by our decisions. And not to mention that we can't make decisions outside of an emotional vacuum. Every decision that you make is covered and driven and biased by the emotions that you experience. And it makes life really complicated. So making decisions is super complicated. I was reading uh, about this um, psychologist named Roy Burmeister, and he coined this phrase decision fatigue. He says it's the emotional and mental strain resulting from a burden of choices. And there's a couple of results that come from it. One is you could just enter into this phase where you don't want to make a decision. You sort of avoid making a decision. Or the other way that you could experience uh, decision fatigue is that you find yourself making risky decisions because you're just trying to make a decision because you're tired of trying to make a decision and maybe it's not the best one. Maybe experience decision fatigue when it comes to 
trying to decide what you're going to eat together throughout the week as a family. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you text your spouse and say, what do you want to eat for dinner this week? And it's like, oh my goodness, there are so many choices. It was complicated before social media and Pinterest where there's now thousands and thousands of recipes that you could potentially try out. And so finally, you're just like, let's just have pasta. That's simple. We'll just eat some pasta. So you're like, okay, I'll go to the grocery store. I'll take care of everything. You go to the grocery store, pasta. That's simple, right? Not when you go to the grocery store. There's like 15 different types of pasta noodles that you could pick from. Do you want the skinny long ones, the skinny short ones? Do you want the penne noodles? Do you want the little boat noodles? It just gets overwhelming. And what you thought was going to be a simple decision is now super complicated. And so what do you do? You do what I do. You call your spouse and you say, which one do I need to pick? Because to, you're tired of experiencing decision fatigue. Or if maybe in your job you're required to hire people. And so you put the job out there. And all of a sudden, all these resumes come flooding in. There's over 100 resumes, and they all look really good, and they all look exactly the same. And there's all a little bit of exaggeration in every single one of them. You just don't know to the degree how much. And so you go through, and you're reading through, and you read through 30, 40. Finally, you're just tired. So you scrap three off the top, three that kind of stand out to you, and those are the three that you interview. But as a result, you may not have actually picked the best candidate. It's decision fatigue. And it affects every one of us. Decision-making is complicated. And as we close out this series on anxious for nothing, one of the greatest ways that we can experience stress and anxiety in our life is when we're forced to make a decision. And not just the little decisions, but especially the big decisions. So what do you do when you just can't decide? What do you do when you're considering, what do I do after high school? Do I go to college? Do I pursue the college of my dreams, but the college of my dreams may have an overwhelming amount of debt coming, coming with it? Do I go to a junior college or a local college? I want to move out. I want to find my own place to live. Do I rent or do I buy? And both are insanely expensive right now. What do I do? Is the person that I'm with the person that God wants me to be with the rest of my life? I've had this job offer. Do I take this new job offer? With this new job offer comes new money. It comes with new opportunities, but we know Mo Money, yeah, you remember, all of you that grew up before the 2000s know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's so many challenges when it comes to making decisions. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at a scene from the life of the early church from Acts chapter 15. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 15. I'll go ahead and give you our big idea this morning. It's this, a posture of prayer, the perspective of praise, and the power of spiritual community will help us make wise decisions. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the posture of prayer. And the big idea from that lesson, and I encourage you to go back and check it out, listen to it, watch it, whatever you to do. The big idea was when you don't have the power to control, you do have the power to surrender. So when you don't know what to do, when you're experiencing stress and anxiety in life, and life has handed you a situation that you can't control, you need to surrender that and surrender it in prayer. And Paul said, the peace of God will surpass your understanding. And then last week, we talked about the perspective of praise. When anxiety tries to lock you into this prison of anxiety, then worship will open your mind and will give you a new perspective. That's why it's so important that we regularly gather together and we engage in worship, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, that we regularly engage in praising God for all the blessings that he has given to us. So we're not going to spend time talking about those two, but they're all three connected. I want to spend our time this morning talking about the power of spiritual community. 
So in Acts chapter 15, we need to do a little bit of background work so you can understand what's going on, especially if you're not familiar. When you open up to the book of Acts, you read about this early church. Jesus has just died, been raised from the dead. He's ascended and gone back into heaven. And he told his disciples, stay in Jerusalem. You're going to receive power from on high. So they do. They stay in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes over them. And it's the day of Pentecost. There's thousands of people who have gathered in Jerusalem. Peter and the rest of the apostles, they stand up and they begin preaching in the name of Jesus. It's the first time they've ever proclaim the gospel in its fullest form. And so they share about Jesus, how he died and was raised from the dead. 3,000 people gave their lives to the Lord that day and were baptized into Christ. Wouldn't that have been an awesome sight? Well, the church, this early church, just grows rapidly. I mean, they're having success. It's multiplying like crazy, but it's mostly Jewish Christians. It's people who have grown up in the Jewish faith that are becoming followers of Jesus. And with that, they're bringing with them kind of the background of their Jewish tradition, some of their dietary laws, the laws of circumcision, some of the traditions and feast days out of the year. Well, in the meantime, as you continue reading through Acts, you get to around Acts chapter 10, and you read about Peter, the same guy that stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached. Peter is on a rooftop and he's spending some time in prayer and he has this vision. And on this vision, this blanket comes down out of the skies and on the blanket is barbecue and bacon. I mean, I don't know if it's barbecue and bacon. It's just unclean foods. But in my mind, that's exactly what it was. Can you imagine however many years Peter's lived? He's never enjoyed bacon up until this point. And I'm just going to assume that's what God places on the blanket because apparently it was pretty good. And so on this blanket comes down these unclean foods and Peter says, Lord, I've never put an unclean thing in my mouth. And Jesus Jesus said, Peter, I've declared all things clean, rise, kill, and eat. And so he does, and he chows down. It actually happens three different times. Well, right as he gets done, you know, probably cleaning the barbecue sauce off of his face, sorry, I'm interjecting a little bit of my own interpretation into the text. These messengers get there. They're from the house of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. In case you're not familiar with that term, it just means not Jewish. So if you didn't grow up, if you don't have any Jewish heritage, you're a Gentile. Congratulations. Welcome to the club. So these messengers get there from Cornelius' house. And they say, we need you to come and speak to Cornelius. Now this is a really big deal. Because for Peter to walk into the house of Cornelius would make him unclean. But he's just had this experience, this vision with his blanket. And these things he thought was unclean being declared clean. So he goes into Cornelius' house. He trusts God and he shares with Cornelius and his family, the gospel of Jesus. As he's telling them about Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes over them in such a visible and profound way that Peter links it to what happens to he and the rest of the apostles in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he says, oh my goodness, this is an amazing thing. And he takes Cornelius and his whole household and baptizes them into the name of Jesus. It's an amazing moment. And it changes the church. Around the same time, there's this guy named Saul who becomes known later as Paul, who was a devout follower of God, who was originally a persecutor of Jesus' followers, but who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and became a follower of Jesus and became not only the persecutor, but changed his identity into becoming one of the persecuted. And he becomes this apostle to the Gentiles. He was chosen specifically by Jesus to travel to Gentile areas 
around that part of the world and to preach about Jesus. And he does. And there's people giving their lives to Christ like crazy. And they're establishing these communities of Jesus followers that we call churches. And they're filled with people who are following Jesus that are from Gentile backgrounds. They've come out of pagan worship. They've come out of pagan lifestyles and pagan religions. And they're also filled with people who were Jewish, who grew up learning about the old te- what we call the Old Testament, following the Pen- Day of Pentecost, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, all these other Jewish feast days that were so a part of their identity. Also the kosher dietary laws and the laws of circumcision. And you bring all these people together and they're divided by religion. They're divided by race and ethnicity. They're divided by tradition and experience. But yet they're united in Jesus and it's a mess. I mean an absolute mess. You have Jewish Christians who are saying, if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, then you're going to have to follow these dietary laws, and you're going to have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And it got so contentious, because isn't that what happens when churches grow? It gets a little messy, because things change a little bit, and it's really complicated. And it comes to this boiling point where all the church leaders say, we got to have a meeting. And so they call everybody back to Jerusalem, and there's guys like Peter and John and James and Paul and Barnabas, and there are other Jewish leaders, and they all come together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 where it's recorded for us, and it's called the Jerusalem Council, and it's a really important moment in the history of the church. And in that moment, Peter stands up, and he shares about this story. He shares this moment where God led him to Cornelius' household, and he describes what happens. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up, and they're talking about how God led them to these Gentile places, and how they were sharing the gospel, and Gentiles were becoming Christians. There's all these churches, and how we need to accept the Gentiles into the faith. And then you have these Jewish Christians, these Jewish leaders who are standing up, and they're saying, no, 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 unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you follow the Jewish dietary laws and eat a kosher diet, and unless you follow these traditional days out of the year and live according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then there's this guy named James who stands up. James was the brother of Jesus. James was not originally a follower of Jesus. Because let's be honest, if your brother said, hey, guess what I am, I'm the son of God, you wouldn't believe him either, would you? You know it would, what it would take for you to believe your brother was the son of God? He would have to die and be raised from the dead. You know that's the only thing that would ever prove it to you because that's the only thing that would ever prove it to me. And apparently it worked with James because it wasn't until after he realized Jesus was raised from the dead that he confessed his brother was actually his Lord. And he becomes one of the major leaders in the early church. And James stands up and he speaks some profound words, words that are soaked in wisdom. You could tell the Holy Spirit was guiding his speech. And what he said was so profound for you and I because it was the turning point in the church that enabled you and I to be here today. If that meeting in Acts 15 goes wrong, we're not here today. Christianity stays primarily a a Jewish thing, and it doesn't travel outside of Jerusalem. And it definitely does not travel over to the United States of America, and it never hits Robertsdale, Alabama. It's a critical moment in the history, not only of the church, but of our history as well. I want to point out some things that they discovered, some things that they said, because I think what they experienced can give us principles for when we just can't decide what to do. So Acts 15, here's what it said. 
It seemed good to the apostles and the elders through the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. So they're sending a letter to these Gentile Christians. Here's what Here's what you need to do. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we've heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words saying there were some who went in our name that we never gave permission and they said things that did not come from us and they're unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us having become of, having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That's their letter. They didn't know exactly what to do, so they did what seemed good to them. That makes sense, right? When you don't know what to do, just do what seems good. That sounds good, doesn't it? Except there's this verse in Proverbs 14, verse 12, that says there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end results in death. Wait a minute. They did what seems good. It seems like if we just do what seems good, it'll all turn out good. But what if what I think is going to be good actually results in destruction? It seems good to me, but its end is actually in destruction. What do we do? Is there any hope? You might have come here looking for answers. I don't know what to do. And well, Eric, you're not helping me at all. You're just confusing me even more. You said do what seems good. But then the Bible says if you do what seems good, its end could end in destruction. What in the world do we do? Let's go back to a couple of the things that are written here. But this time I want to notice a couple of different words. Notice not that it seemed good, but who it seemed good to. It seemed good to the whole church. It seemed good having become of one mind. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. See, when you don't know what to do and you just can't decide... There is this gift that God is giving to us where we can find assistance and encouragement and guidance when we can't make a decision on our own because maybe the consequences we know are life-changing. This is a really big decision, and we don't know what to do. And I also know that when I make decisions, there are times that I've convinced myself of something that would be really good. It seemed good in the moment, but in reality, it was the worst decision I could have made. I know I can't decide in an emotional vacuum. I can't separate myself from this decision and from my emotion and look at it from an unbiased standpoint. So what do I do? The power of spiritual community. You see, when you're faced with making a decision, if you'll follow the principle here of engaging the whole church, of becoming one mind and surrendering it to the Holy Spirit, you'll find yourself making decisions that are far greater than you could have ever imagined. Because a posture of prayer, the perspective of praise and the power of spiritual community will help you make wise decisions. Now let's talk for a minute. Let's talk about the church. 
for some of us, when we think of church, the image that comes into our mind is a location, a place, a building, a sign, a name on a sign. When in reality, what the church is, is actually a movement. It's a people. It's a community. And so when we talk about the power of spiritual community and the power of the church, what we are called to be is so much more than just gathering together for an hour or two a week. We are called to be far more than just a group of people who show up, we sing together, we sit together, we listen together, we engage in some chit-chat after the service is over, and then we leave and we go on back to our regular lives where we're making our own decisions on our own. That's not what Jesus died for. That's not what he established. Folks, listen to me. We just engaged in a ceremony. We just engaged in a meal where we passed trays. And I don't know what that Lord's Supper means to you, but I want to broaden your understanding of what that means this morning. Because if all of you think about when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper is you and God, this simply vertical relationship that it only affects you and God, you've missed half of it. The Lord's Supper is far greater than that. It was originally designed to be a vertical experience and a horizontal experience. When we gather together and partake of that bread and drink of that cup, we are engaging in a sacred covenant meal. When we break that bread with one another and we drink that cup, we are declaring to one another and to the world that we are living together in covenant community. Not just committed to one another, but engaging in covenant community. I want to challenge you to do some reading this week. Spend some time going through the Bible and reading about the different covenants. And what you'll find is that they are sacred that they are things that should not be broken lightly, if broken at all. What we experience today in Christianity is you find a church that meets all of your needs, and if they're not doing something you like, then just go find a different place that can give you what you need. But what you read about in the scriptures, when we gather together around that table and we engage in that meal, and we share that meal together, we are committing our lives to one another. Go read 1 Corinthians 11. If it's only a vertical relationship, why in the world is Paul concerned about how they're treating one another? Why in the world is Paul saying that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes? Why in the world does it matter that we welcome one another and accept one another in our lives if all that matters is my relationship with God? That meal is so much more because we are breaking the very body of Christ that we are a part of. And we are to engage in covenant community, not just spiritual community, but covenant community that is committed to a far greater level than anything else you've experienced in this life, aside from the bonds of family, the bonds of marriage, because we are brought together by the blood of Jesus. We're called to share our lives together. Yet what we are encouraged to do is live in isolation. Our enemy is trying to push us further apart, wedge us against one another because the more we live in isolation and make decisions in isolation, the more our lives will be filled with regret. The enemy wants to drive a wedge between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't recognize that, you're living with blinders on. We have a real enemy who wants to drive us apart. We also have a culture that's trying to divide us and trying to get us to live in isolation. Exhibit number one is the device that most of us are carrying around every day. How much time do you spend on social media, locked into your phone, responding to emails, searching the web? We can't even share meals together anymore without being distracted by our phones. 
You see people regularly riding in a car, walking down the street, sitting at a lunch table, and everybody's in their own little world, not engaging together in the relationships that God has blessed them with. And folks, we got to understand that this is a push from our culture and from our enemy to get us to live more isolated. The more isolated you live, the more your life will be filled with regret. If you want to know whether the person you're with is the person you should spend your life with, go ask the church. Go ask your connect group. Ask the people that you've brought into your spiritual circle. Go ask them what they think. Ask your family. They'll be honest with you. If you want to know, is my job, has your job pulled your heart away from the Lord? Has it caused you to be less faithful as a follower of Jesus? Invite people into your life and give them the right to be honest with you. And they'll tell you. They'll speak truthfully to you. But as long as we show up and we plaster on our smiles and we just engage in lighthearted little banter back and forth, talk about the ball game, talk about what we did over the weekend, and we never dive deeper into spiritual community, then we'll miss out on this great gift that God has given to us. Because when you can't decide, God is inviting each of us to share our lives together in covenant community, bonds that are not broken Deep family ties because we're bonded together through the blood of Jesus. So here's one I want to challenge you with this morning. Have you invited people into your life to share life together? Have you invited people into your life to share life together? Because here's what I can tell you. It does not happen by accident. It doesn't happen just because you show up to the same location with the same group of people on a regular basis. It only happens through intentionality. It only happens through saying, I need you to come into my life and we engage in covenant community. I need help raising my kids. I need help keeping my marriage strong. I need help keeping my mind focused on Christ at all times. I need help because I need people to pray for me. Jesus had a circle of people. Do you realize that? He had a circle of 12 and then even smaller than that, he had a circle of three. Jesus had a circle. If Jesus had a circle, do you think you need one too? Yes, do this. Absolutely. You need a circle. Whether or not you have a circle is a different question. It requires intentionality. It requires you to take that step and say, I know it's going to be awkward for a little bit, but I need you to come into my circle. I need you to come into my life and be part of this covenant community because I need people in my life who will hold me accountable, who will lift me up when I'm down, who will challenge me when I'm wrong, who will help me in all the struggles that I'm dealing with going through life because this is what we were created for. When we engage in that meal every week. When we gather around that spiritual table and eat that bread and drink that cup, we are declaring not only to God but to the world that we are a community of people that is brought together in covenant that it's tightly bonded together through the blood of Jesus, called to share our lives together. Now, you can do all of that and still make the wrong decision, can't you? You can have a circle of people. You can take your cares and concerns to the whole church. You can surrender it to the Holy Spirit, and you can still mess up. And if you don't believe that, just read the book of Genesis. It's just a book filled with people who just make one wrong decision after the other. But thank the Lord 
that what God will do is just like your GPS when you make a wrong turn. What does it do? It says rerouting. And it'll still get you where you're going. It might take you a little bit longer. You might be taking the scenic route. And some of us like to drive the scenic route because we're just a little hard-headed. And you might be going the long way around, but you'll eventually get there. And you'll have some experiences to share along the way. But God will reroute your life. And he will bring you to where he's calling you. That's why we need a Savior. Because even in the midst of this awesome spiritual community that we have, Still going to mess up. Still going to make the wrong decision. Thank the Lord. He does not give up on us. Thank the Lord he doesn't say, well, you get what you deserve. Enjoy destruction. He's faithful. He pursues us as long as there is time. So today, my question to you is, what's God calling you to do? For some of you, what he's calling you to do is surrender your life to him. He knows you're ready. It's about taking that step and giving your life to Christ in obedience and be baptized today. For some of you, what he's calling you to do is invite people into your life to truly share your life with. It's going to require you some time. It's going to cost you a little bit of comfort, but it'll be worth it. For some of you, he's calling you to spend some time repenting over sin that's crept into your life finding people to hold you accountable. Our shepherds are going to be up front and in the back. If you want them to pray over you, they'd love to do that for you this morning. If you want us as a church to stop what we're doing and to say a prayer over you, we'd love to do that as well. This is why we're here, because we all need a Savior, and we all need one another. If there's anything we can help you with, please let us know as we stand and sing.